emotions live in the body and our, our ability to connect with our emotions, it's not an experience that happens in the, in the head, in the brain, it happens in the body. And so if we feel disconnected from our body, we're also disconnecting ourselves from the emotions that, that kind of make sense of, of our reality. And so we might get disconnected in a way that can really harm us in, under, in fully understanding what's going on with us and what's going on with our relationship with the world. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. Emotions live in the body, yet many of us spend most of our time in our heads. While the mind is a powerful tool, healing anxiety, trauma, and toxic perfectionism requires an ability to feel our emotions and reconnect with our bodies. In this episode, UF alum, counselor, and group fitness instructor Melanie Mason shares how she is learning to be in her body, challenge harsh and unrealistic expectations for herself, and help others do the same. Hi, Melanie. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad you're here. So we're talking today about your personal experiences with anxiety and how you have learned to understand your anxiety and how to work with your anxiety, what's been helpful for you. And you're just going to share more about those experiences today. So I wonder if we could just start with what has anxiety been like for you? I think I'm new to this whole understanding anxiety thing. When I was little, I I know I've had anxiety for most of my life, but I, when I was little, I was not really aware of it. I didn't know that that's what it was and I wasn't given the tools to understand it any better. And so, and, and even up and through middle school and high school, all of that same type of thing. So it, it it wasn't until graduate school that I figured out that what I was dealing with was anxiety. I had I would get a lot of panic attacks. I would have physical symptoms like chest tightness and those really queasy feelings in my stomach. And then I'd also have all the worries and the fears. And I felt like, you know, now looking back at it, that a lot of what I did growing up and into graduate school when I first realized that it was anxiety was motivated by fear. So everything that I would do was out of fear that something bad could happen if I didn't do that thing. And so that's a big part of anxiety for me is that it's fueled by fear. And and I've learned a lot about myself since I started really getting into what anxiety meant for me. Can you say more about the specific fears that were motivating you? Yeah. So I think the more that I do work on this and in my own therapy and in the past in my own therapy and just in reflecting on myself is that I see a lot of the same core belief. And that same core belief for me is that I'm not good enough. And so most of most of what I was always running away from was that fear of never being good enough. And so I would try really hard. I was 
named a, a perfectionist in high school and middle school for going above and beyond for certain things. And But it wasn't motivated by a desire to achieve. It was more out of a desire to ensure that I was prepared enough and that I did enough so that I wouldn't be labeled as as a failure or as not good enough by teachers, by people that were important to me, by friends, by family. And so a lot of it was was image focused. It was fearing fearing abandonment from those people that were really important to me. And so that's another core belief that I had of if I'm not good enough, will I lose these people that think that I'm a certain way because I'm always trying this hard. So there was a lot of of those types of core beliefs based on that fear. Thank you for sharing that. So you said you're relatively new to not to feeling anxious or experiencing anxiety, but to being more aware that you're experiencing it and more aware of, of where it's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. How did you start to become more aware? Yeah, I think I think the the first thing that really told me that something was wrong was graduate school and learning about specifically about anxiety um, and about mental health concerns and realizing, oh, that's me. Oh, I'm doing that. A lot of it felt very like almost like I had blinders on and I was just always going forward and not really checking in with myself, my body, with my emotions, with how I'm feeling. And so even even things like panic attacks that, you know, we perceive to be really big experiences for people. I was yes, I was having them, but I also wasn't I wasn't aware that I was having them. Like I was having these feelings where I couldn't breathe, where it almost felt like a heart attack, but I I was so focused on the goal of being good enough of finishing the studying or finishing, you know, whatever it was that my goal was for that day that I wasn't fully taking time and and being present in in what it felt like to have that panic attack. And so once I had that more that, you know, greater education of what it was like for any person to have anxiety and what those symptoms could be, I started noticing them more and more in myself. Yeah, and something you said about the payoffs for perfectionism is standing out to me. And I wanted to talk about that before we move on, Mm -hmm. which is that you had some really deep fear that the people that you love, the people around you would abandon you. I'm wondering if that also means like withdraw their love or withdraw their Mm -hmm. approval, withdraw their Mm -hmm. affection or their support. Yeah. If you fell short of whatever the expectations were. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I noticed this not as just in myself, but also in clients that I've worked with, but I think that some people, including myself, um, believe that you can, only have love if you've earned it and and that was a very that was very strong in me from an early age that if i did something wrong that i felt or perceived was wrong or someone else perceived as wrong then i'd have to find a way to make up for that wrong and that i wouldn't be loved as much 
unless I found a way to, to get back to that place that I had been at before, like almost like it was like a scale or that it was constantly being weighed by the other person. So, and, and obviously that's not how I ever loved other people, but it's how I perceived other people to love me. And I think it stemmed from, from a a low self-esteem from an early age and things like that as well. But I have noticed other, other clients feeling that same type of way where they feel like if they're, if they're not constantly doing something that they haven't earned enough love to, for people to stay with them. We can pick up on those messages in our families of origin and schools in popular culture, on social media, there's a lot of ways to internalize the message that you're not good enough and that you need to do X, Y, Z in order to be good enough, in order to be worthy or valuable. And I'm thinking the more marginalized identities one occupies, the more those messages just stack up and stack up and amplify mm-hmm. but to just to be anybody in our american society we're all susceptible to messages that frame our worth or value based on achievements that is not inherent you're not lovable or worthy of love just the way you are right Yeah. And I love the way that you spoke about it, you know, within our society. I think that there's so many different messages that we get specifically within the society of the United States that we have to be productive members of society. We have to achieve in order to be deemed worthy. And so we might be getting that from our families. We might be getting that from societal beliefs or or the way that our system works with occupations or professions and and schooling and all of that, I really believe that it's kind of in the the fabrics of our society, that it's weaved into those fabrics of society. And, And that's something that took me a long time to realize too, because I think the message wasn't, I wasn't receiving that message. I was receiving the message from that, that I wasn't good enough and that I had to keep working harder and harder Um, Instead of stepping back and realizing what the message was and that it really wasn't meant for me, but it was meant from this idea of pushing for productivity in our society. So, but yeah, I I definitely received that from, from family and, and from society as well. I was thinking productivity, but also consumption. That Mm -hmm. if the less satisfied we are with ourselves, the more likely we are to buy things in that effort. So, and how how much self reinforcement there is for pursuing perfection, like especially Mm -hmm. in the public school system, students who are really high achieving and driven to perfectionism get rewarded through Mm -hmm. a system of grades and scholarships and opportunities and approval right. that it's easy to arrive in college, especially really any, any university setting or college setting. Um, but the more competitive the university, the more likely you are to be surrounded by people who have been experiencing similar pressures towards perfectionism. Right. Yeah. 
I was always a, a straight A student in elementary school and middle school and high school and then into college. And it would, I mean, it was a great source of, of the anxiety of where the anxiety came from. Of If I didn't get an A, thinking of the worst case scenarios. And I think a lot of that stems from the positive reinforcement, right, that I got from teachers and from parents and, and of being that the greatest compliment or the greatest show of love that I would ever get was after I got a good grade, whether that be from a parent or from a sibling or from a, a teacher. And as a twin growing up, I, I found that, you know, we, we said that we weren't competing with each other, but we really were. And um, a big part of that was almost competing for our parents' love in a way. And I think it's a very common dynamic among twins, but it, it felt like the one thing that I can control if I'm, if I'm in this stage of quote unquote earning my parents' love that I could control if I got a good grade or not. And that was the easiest way to get to earning the love that my parents could give me. Yes, it's, you know, within our society and then it's also within families. And so it's really hard to not get this way. And I see this in the students that we see, almost all of the students that come in are, have some form of anxiety, either whether they know it or they don't know it. There's some form of anxiety there. And I just see it more and more in the way that our generations have, have been brought up to really care about grades and about test scores and all of those things. And so, yes, anxiety isn't all about academics, but that's a big part of it, especially for me. That was a huge part of it for me. Almost like those good grades were a currency that bought you the love that you, that we all need. And the irony being anything we have to buy, like love or respect or value doesn't, it's not going to feel as good. It's not the real thing if we have to buy it. Right. Yeah. And I see a lot of, and this in my own life too, of um, strict parents, that idea of the stricter that the parents are, the more high achieving their, their kids are. But they, I also see in that same type of parent that there's an absence of just letting the child know that, that, that you love them for who they are and that you would love them if they failed a grade or if they didn't fail. And I, I definitely didn't get those messages when I was younger. And so I just, I think that um, that contributes as well. I'm imagining a lot of parents will focus on those achievements because they want what's best for their kids and they perceive mm -hmm. that, you know, the better that you do in school, the more opportunities you're likely to have. And I see that a lot too in students that I counsel that they they may have missed just that basic valuing and loving from their caregivers. Yeah, yeah I see that a lot in clients I work with too. And it just reminds me of, of how our society has become very intellectualized and very, you know, like we were talking about before, very focused on grades and doing well and succeeding and then into adulthood productivity and things like that. And we, we forget about just like I did the, the emotions that we're feeling, we forget to slow down and to be present in the, in the moment. And I think that if I were more present in the moment, I would be able to 
and I'm working on this too, um, but be able to have more gratitude for where I'm at, have more gratitude for the love that I have for people in my life, be able to show my emotions and show how much I care for people in my life. And I just wonder if that had, you know, anything to do with the way that my parents had, had raised me and yes, worried about me and being what's doing what's best for me and getting those opportunities and stuff. But if they had slowed down and, and taken the time to consider how they were feeling towards me in the present moment and, and just sticking with that or, or looking at that gratitude. I'm smiling, listening to you and thinking even about moments with my little one where it's so easy to get caught up in what needs to happen next. Like we need to give you breakfast and we need to change your diaper and get you in your clothes and pack you mm-hmm. lunch so we can get you out the door to go to daycare. And that there's this like beautiful, essential, organic being that's staring out at me that just wants to play and touch things and crawl around and cuddle and bite me, which is a problem, but <laughs> just like a being, you know, that just, that's just trying to be, and that it is my responsibility as his caregiver to do all of those things that need to be done, but that I also need to see him, see him as the being that he is, and not just as a set of a collection of tasks that I need to perform or we need to perform together. Right. I think that it's, that comes from, it stems from a cultural narrative that devalues the the felt experience, the emotional experience, the body experience, and, and takes something so beautiful like a child or, you know, the love that you have for, for someone in your life and turns it into, well, in order for this to, continue being the way it is, these are the things that these tasks, this collection of tasks that we have to do in order for this to maintain that it's worth. When really there's so much value in embodiment, which is something that I've I've learned a lot about recently and, and I'm starting to work on myself. I've found that prior to any of this work around embodiment, I was very stuck in my head. It felt like my body was just a suitcase to carry my brain around, if that makes sense. And by doing that, by by having everything feel intellectualized, everything be about my brain, I was devaluing my experience in in the emotional experience I was have in I was having and understanding what my body felt about you know certain things that were going on. And the interesting thing is that emotions live in the body. And our, our ability to connect with our emotions, it's not an experience that happens in the, in the head, in the brain. It happens in the body. And so if we feel disconnected from our body, we're also disconnecting ourselves from the emotions that, that kind of make sense of, of our reality. And so we might get disconnected in a way that can really harm us in, under, in fully understanding what's going on with us and what's going on with our relationship with the world. I was thinking about times in my own life where if somebody were to ask me what I was feeling or what my body was experiencing, 
my answer would be, well, I think I feel, yeah. mm-hmm. I think I feel sad or I think I feel tired versus what does that sadness or tiredness, what is my inner experience of sadness right. or tiredness, which yeah. involves taking my attention out of my head. And I love how you said that your body is just like the suitcase that carries your head around. I've heard it put it another way. Like our body is just the vehicle to get our head around to meetings. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And so learning to have physical or embodied awareness of what sadness, tiredness, joy, energy, longing, what any of it actually stress feels Mm -hmm. like in the body is what you're talking about by this concept of embodiment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so it goes back to what I was talking about before where I, I was so unaware of the panic attacks I was having. I was so focused on getting to the next thing and completing the next task. And all of that stems from my, my lack of embodiment and kind of going to your point about you saying, I think I feel this way, something that I noticed about myself. Actually, no, that's not true. Something that my therapist noticed about me that had to, she had to point it out to me was that when she would ask how I was feeling, I would say, I feel like, and then say a thought. Instead of connecting with my emotions, I would say something like, I feel like I'm just, I don't know, I, I just want to do blah, blah, blah. And so I would talk about an action or a thought and never about the actual emotion that I was feeling. And so, and this is, you know, a phenomenon that a lot of our clients that come in deal with as well. It actually has a name, it's called alexithymia. And it's, it's basically just an inability to connect with our emotions and it's so common in everyone. I think young people especially are, are getting to the point where they're wanting to do that work and understand where it's coming from and do some of the embodiment work. And so a lot of my therapeutic work centers around that now as well of where do you feel this in your body when you're talking about the specific emotion? And if, you know, if they don't know or they have trouble, I might bring in my own experience of, well, when you said that, I really felt it in my stomach. Did you feel that in your stomach or did you feel it somewhere else? And the reason why that's really important is is to understand that emotional experiences start as a dyadic experience, meaning that we start understanding emotions in how we look at our caregivers. And so our caregivers might feel a certain way and then we experience that emotion that they're experiencing. If we are not given that opportunity to experience the emotions that our caregivers are experiencing or to name those experiences from an early age, or if our caregivers are pushing down and telling us, no, don't, don't feel that way, don't cry, things like that, it makes it a lot, a lot harder to grow in our embodiment from an early age. And I know from my own experience, I was unable to to get those experiences with embodiment because I had parents that would say, well, don't, don't worry about that. Don't cry. There's no reason to, you know, feel that emotion. And so by pushing it down, I was, I I started to where I, I stopped being able to recognize what those emotions were as well. Um, And the more that I pushed it down, the more that I 
was unable to recognize. And the more that I was unable to recognize, the more that it just stopped existing in my reality. And so the more that that happened, the more that I got stuck in just focusing on my head up and, and focusing on what my brain wanted instead of what my whole body, my whole self, including my body, needed at the time. What has it been like to get more familiar with what your body is experiencing, feeling, wanting, needing? I mean, frankly, that sounds like a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And it sounds also like exhausting at times. And mm -hmm. I don't know, just, I may, I don't mean to answer the question for you, but, but I just <laughs> want to acknowledge as a therapist and as a person who's done some of that exploration myself, ugh, it's not easy. No. Yeah. And, and my answer to that question is, yeah, it's, it, it's been really hard and it's been slow work too. I, I've noticed a bit of progress over time, but it's also, it's such a, it's an unlearning of years and years of a specific type of behavior that prevented me from feeling those emotions. And so I recognize it's not going to take, it's not going to be a quick fix, but at the same time, it's frustrating that it's not because there's so much knowledge and excitement about the education that I'm getting around embodiment and then not having anywhere to put that passion because it, it takes so long to, to get to that point where that unlearning and relearning is, is possible. Why do you need your emotions back? Like, why do you, <laughs> why do you need to feel your body, Melanie? I think for me, what I've realized is that I am losing a big part of my full experience in the world by not having emotion, by not feeling those emotions. And a lot of what I've done in the past is, is numbing. So I would numb, I would try to numb, emphasis on try, to numb the hard emotions so that I could get through something and, like I said, be more productive. But we as therapists know that you can't numb just one type of emotion. It, you really, if you're numbing your, your sadness, you're also numbing your joy. You're also numbing your excitement. You're also numbing your passion. It's dulling my experience in the world without my ability to feel what I'm feeling and to understand what's going on in my body. I've had less ability to fully experience the, the emotions of joy and, and yes, sadness, but, you know, completely. And so it feels like there's something missing. And for so long, I didn't know what that something was. I, I thought, well, I'll just keep working hard and eventually I'll get there. But that's really not what it is. I mean, it's, it's so much more than that. It's so much more fulfilling if I can find a way to fully experience all of the emotions. I, I just feel like when I have done it, when I have been able to get to that point, I've noticed such a, a wholeness in myself that I, I, can't, I can't describe. It reminds me of this, the feeling of, of when you're little and you're climbing up a tree and you feel like there's no care in the world and you're just trying to be curious and adventurous and you're, you're very free it feels like that. And 
for me that for me it feels like that and I part of the reason why I think it does is because that was the last time that I really felt my body felt my full experience in my body and so my body has that memory of being in that tree and feeling that freedom and this is the closest thing now you know 25 years later that I've ever been to that point and so it's I mean I can see that this is what I'm missing and I'm that's why this work is so important to me one word that really stands out in what you just shared is wholeness and mm-hmm. you the what you were describing was like when you feel whole you don't have that same drive to just try to achieve, to fill in the parts of you that feel empty mm-hmm. or not good enough. Like being able to be whole and enough inside of your own body, your own skin, your own world is just sounds deeply healing. Yeah. And I'm imagining too that like from that place, it's easier to make decisions about what you want to do with your limited time and energy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And there, yeah, there's more of an emphasis on, on things that can fill up my, my body and my mind or nourish my, my body and my mind instead of just trying to complete tasks and, and get things done. I'm thinking about a conversation that I had with a black colleague earlier this week and she was talking and she, she did another episode for this podcast, Rainisha Miller, but she was talking about as a black woman, just n- that there are times where she does not feel safe in her own body and that there are so many reasons why she doesn't feel safe in her body growing mm-hmm. up black in the United States and all of the racism that she experiences and all of the internalized stereotypes and the internalized racism that comes from growing up black. And I was just, yeah, so I was thinking about how trauma and racial trauma, discrimination-related trauma fits in this conversation. And we're both white, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're both white people. Yeah. Um, but I'm just thinking about even this quest to be, to feel whole and comfortable and embodied is certainly one that, that I, I hope, I hope everyone has access to and, and can mm-hmm. pursue because it is, it's healing, it's liberating, it's hard, but it's worth it. But just thinking about how privilege, how that, that like who gets, who's allowed to feel safe in our bodies. Yeah. 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 I, I, I thought about that while you were speaking that there, there are so many barriers to feeling this embodiment. And as a white person, I have the privilege of, of not feeling fear just for the color of my skin and also I'm in a place right now in my life where I can do this work and focus on on the embodiment um, as it comes up and I, I recognize that there are so many reasons 
you know, related to hate and, and racial oppression and for those folks that are are trans and, and don't feel comfortable in, in their own body. There are so many different ways that, that this could come up and could be a barrier to it. And so, yeah, and, and I also recognize the ones that came up in my own life as I, in the past, had tried to do some of this work and, and was unable to. And, and trauma plays a big factor in our ability to feel embodied or not. Like we talked about, there is that aspect of feeling our emotions and, and is that a message that we get from an early age that we're supposed to push those down and, and, or not. So that's, you know, one pl- part of not feeling embodied or, or path to not feeling embodied. The other one that's really big that we haven't talked about yet is trauma and just how things like sexual assault or or feeling or just racial aggression, racial oppression, all of the the things that we've mentioned are are ways that we can a big coping mechanism that we can use, including myself, is shutting ourselves off from those really hard emotions and not feeling them. And so we see this in the form of trauma by dissociation. And specifically for me, I'm a survivor of multiple sexual assaults in my life and noticed myself from an early age, from the first time that it happened in high school, stopping myself from feeling anything um, below my neck. Basically, I was just focusing on my brain and it getting me through. And that dissociation, it feels like, at least in my experience, I know it's different for each person, but it feels like you're kind of floating through life or watching yourself from an out-of-body kind of experience that you're not fully present. I felt that with the first time that I was sexually assaulted and it just continued with, with more and more trauma that you experience and come from like a physiological perspective, what that really is, is there are nerve endings in our body that really process trauma. The book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk talks a bit about that and how our, our body physiologically is meant to take the time to process those things and to let those nerves kind of process everything that's going on um, in the body. But we as humans are, are intellectualizing things. We try to keep going. We try to push through. And so when that's the case, we don't have the opportunity to fully process the trauma that we've been through, which makes disassociating much easier. Yeah, I was thinking about rage and just raw pain that follows from big and small traumas and Mm -hmm. that we are socialized to be polite and to not to not wail in public, to not even cry in public, to not raise our voices yeah, uh, and pound our fists. And that those are very ancient ways of processing with our nerves and our, and our, our physical beings, these, these overwhelming experiences. And yeah, I cannot tell you how many students apologize for crying when they Mm -hmm. come to counseling 
and it's almost reflexive that they apologize this as soon as a tear starts to fall it's i'm sorry i'm sorry and a mm-hmm. rush for the tissues and a rush to cover it up this shouldn't be happening i told myself this wouldn't happen right and you're telling me about like the things that hurt the most inside of you and yet there's this prohibition against showing any of the pain right yeah i mean that's what we learn in our society that emotions are not productive, that they're not helpful. We may learn them from our caregivers. We may learn them from social media. We may learn them from TV, um, whatever the case may be. I, I just, I have this story that reminds me of kind of what we've been talking about. A friend or colleague that I know talked about having alexithymia, so that that trouble with connecting emotions and understanding their emotions. And he was at a funeral um, for his father and would, and only was able to come up with one like blurted sob and then completely shut down after that. And that that was the most that his, that his mind would let him, you know, lose control and, and, and grieve. And that after that he didn't cry at all. And that, I just think about all of the pent up rage or sadness or whatever else is related to those emotions that are stuck in his body and how that can contribute to this feeling of of disembodiment that we've talked about. They did research on on rats and had where they they took the the tears of humans that had been crying, you know, those devastating cries of, of grief or something, you know, really hard and fed those tears to rats. And it actually came up with the, the rats having health issues from those, from those tears. So there's toxicity in these tears that we're crying and, and, and the ability for us to actually let those out of our system is so important. But all the times that we think about where we've kept those inside of us, those tears and that those weren't okay to show to anyone, even, even to yourself over time, which is something that happened to me as well. And from an early age, I thought I was really cool because I wouldn't cry at movies and that that was like a a cool parlor trick that I had. And when really I was denying myself the ability to experience the emotions that, you know, they were trying to convey in the movie or the TV show or whatever it may be. What are some things that have helped you with greater embodiment? And I know it's a journey and it's one you're very much in and on right now. What are some things that you have found helpful, Melanie? Yeah. So for me, I started exercising pretty regularly in in college and knew for some reason that that was helpful for a number of reasons, but didn't really know why, why I felt better after I would exercise. And and the more that I, I recognize it now, the more that I've been able to see that it's related to this feeling of embodiment, the ability to almost like shut my brain off for a little bit and let my body take over. Um, something I've, I've felt in, in dance, especially. Um, and I'm definitely not a dancer, but it's something that I really enjoy. I, and I, when I get in that place where I know no one's watching, 
Um, and I'm not worried about how I'm, how my form is or what I look like. It's something that I'm, I feel that freedom that we talked about, like I had when I was climbing up the tree when I was young. Um, and it's, you know, it's not just dance, but that's a really good example for me. And, and exercise in general is one of those ways where being able to move my body feels important. It feels like it's something that I'm doing for my body, not just for my mind, but I'm doing for my whole self. And it gives me that sense of freedom. At the same time, I've, I've been trying to start, start with the idea of mindfulness as well. And I think that that's a bit harder for me, but it's something that I'm definitely working on and staying in the present moment, understanding, you know, the gratitude I have for that moment and things like that are, is another good way too. So exercise and mindfulness, and it sounds like mindfulness is a newer, is a newer part of this for you. And there's lots and lots of resources out there on mindfulness. And I'm sure we'll do some episodes that are specifically devoted to that. So I wanted to get your take on exercise or movement in general. You are also, so you're working towards your license in mental health counseling, Mm -hmm. and you are also a group fitness instructor, correct? Yes. Yes, I am. So you teach group fitness classes for the rec sports or the gym at the University of Florida. Yes. And yeah. are those primarily students who take your classes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's mostly students. I I started teaching about four, three to four years ago. And while I was in graduate school, I, I became certified. So I, it's been a long journey with exercise. Like a lot of people that age, around 20, 21, 22, I was in it at first for the aesthetic, um, wanting to look a certain way, wanting to feel a certain way, wanting to feel skinny, that type of stuff. And my perspective has completely changed since then. And so at first exercise felt like it was, it was just for that purpose, for, for the aesthetic. The more that I went through the training to be a group fitness instructor, and the more that I learned about you know, my role and my identity as a feminist, I've, I've really started to come into my own thoughts about everybody being different and everybody being valuable and the influence that social media has on, on how we view our body collectively. And, and it became less about the aesthetic for me. And by the time I was certified, it became a lot more about encouraging exercise for the purpose of confidence for the for the purpose of of strength um and now you know after a few years of working for the for the purpose of of getting in our bodies and and giving ourselves a chance to experience you know everything that our body has to offer so that embodiment piece is is becoming a big part of it for me as well given that so many college students are highly critical of their bodies and are aiming for some unattainable image of physical perfection that industry puts out to us. How do you encourage your participants to 
be in their bodies from a place of love and appreciation and connection with themselves. How do you do that? Very strategically. <laughs> I think a, a big part of it is, and, and a lot of what what they're teaching us now as group fitness instructors is how to encourage and reinforce the the aspects of strength, of courage, of resilience of you know you name it and in, instead of of those what you hear a lot on the on the YouTube videos or different things of like oh your your glutes are gonna look so good or you know you're gonna be so skinny after this video those things that really encourage you to to be doing the workout specifically so that you have a nice looking body instead of doing it so that you feel a certain way. Um, and so it, it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about earlier where, you know, are you exercising so that you can check off a box of, yes, I'm skinny or yes, I'm muscular or I'm built the way that I want to be, or are you exercising for in the moment, that feeling of, of serotonin, that feeling of the endorphins coming in when, when you're exercising and your body, you know, your brain releases those hormones that make you feel good. Are you exercising for, to show yourself what you're capable of? And so a lot of my role as a fitness instructor comes in that it comes in from that second perspective. I will encourage participants by saying, look at what you were able to do today. Maybe we set a, a small goal for the class of, of what they're trying to accomplish that day, but it, it'll, it won't be something like, I'm going to burn this many calories or I'm going to be this sweaty. It'll be something more like, you know, I'm going to complete the class or I'm, I'm going to make a new friend. Um, there's so many different ways that group fitness can be helpful. And it's not just about how your body looks. It's so much more than that. And I, I'm, so, I'm so against that belief now because I see what it's done for me and I've seen what it's done for participants that I've worked with. The idea of being able to socialize with people in a setting where you feel a community is another big part of, of how I, I work in, in, as a group fitness instructor in my classes to encourage people to keep coming back. This idea that we're in it together, we're in it as a team, we're going to complete it together. And that obviously de-emphasizes the idea of this is for your body or your or the way that you are looking. And it's more about the way that the whole community, the whole group of people is doing. The idea of achieving as a group instead of, you know, achieving a specific look. I want to be there. <laughs> You're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> well, I was thinking about how I love hearing, I love hearing your philosophy and I love hearing how much intention that you put into that role, because I think as a fitness instructor, you really do have the opportunity to set a tone and mm -hmm. that it is, it's really powerful to have someone in that role who is pushing against the the narrative that we're all bombarded with and it, and it's almost like it's reflecting on some of my my relationship to movement and exercise over the years and today 
that it's almost like I have internalized this idea that I actually have to look perfect in order to be allowed to exercise. Yeah. Like the only people who are allowed to go out in public and exercise need to already pass a certain physical test. And this isn't something I carry around overtly, but it's a barrier whenever I think, oh, it might be nice to just like stretch or might be nice to like go to the stadium and walk up some stairs and breathe or try to climb that tree over there or something that there's this barrier that comes up that's like well but you haven't you haven't been working out so i don't think you're really allowed to start now mm-hmm. or well you're 40 so you're never going to look like you did when you were 20 so what's the point And I don't know, it's just wild to me how pervasive and deep those ideas run about that. And it essentially amounts to, well, I'm not really allowed to use my body. Yeah. 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 That's such a good point. I think these messages that we hear from an early age are be good at sports, be, be good at working out. And if you are, then you can show yourself off to the other people in the group or in the community. And if you aren't good at these things, then you go to the back of the class or you don't come at all. And I've definitely felt those too. I think that those are especially inherent messages that women hear in in a society that especially encourages women to be there for men or to be sexual objects in this society um, and that that's all we're good for. And so if we don't look good, if we don't do this dance the right way um, or in a sexy way or whatever it may be, then why do it at all? Um, And so a lot of there's a lot of of feminist thinking that is in the fitness culture that requires us to take back our voice, take back our ability to to feel empowered in in exercise, um, and recognize those internalized messages that we've been hearing from this, frankly, patriarchal society that we're living in telling us to be a certain way um, and to look a certain way. And, and those are big things that I try to, well, obviously for myself, try to fight against. Um, and then also try to fight against in my classes. So when I get participants that are, are new to the class, I, I want them to feel as welcome as possible. And I might give more attention to them in a way that feels comfortable for them than I will to the other participants that have been there before, because I want to encourage their journey and, and make sure that they don't feel like they're not good enough. So, and, and that might go back to some of my own stuff, but it's a big journey to, to even get to a fitness class nowadays, because there's two competing perspectives, right? There's that perspective of exercise for aesthetic reasons. And then there's this new perspective coming in of exercise for embodiment and for 
excitement and for activity and for passion and for joy. And that's the narrative that I want to push. And fun. And fun. Yeah. I had fun with you today. <laughs> I did too. This is a this is a really relevant conversation and I suspect that a number of students who hear it will be able to relate. And I very much appreciate you sharing some parts of your story and also for the inspiration to spend more time in my own body and keep reminding myself that my body and my relationship with my body, my experience with my body is my right. Mm -hmm. And it is enough, no matter where you are in that journey of embodiment, wherever you are, it's enough. And the more that we're able to challenge these messages that we've heard throughout our lives of how we should be and what we, and you know, how we need to be productive or how we can be valuable by, you know, getting good grades or being skinny or whatever it may be, the more that it's uh, an act of resistance against the system that was not meant for everyone. And that is incredibly important to me. And it's um, the reason why I get up every day and I do therapy and it's the reason why I get up every day and I do group fitness because I want people to be themselves and to feel valuable as exactly who they are. Thank you so much, Melanie. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.